Listener Production. Hi, I'm Rosie Waterland. This is Mum Says My Memoir Is A Lie. You will be in rehab several times before you're 10 years old. Rehab is a lot like camp. That's what I tell people whenever they ask, and they often ask because I've been so many times. The catch, of course, is that I didn't go to rehab as a patient. I went as the daughter of a patient. And rehab only feels like camp when you're a kid without an addiction problem. I'm pretty sure for everyone else, rehab feels a lot less like camp and a lot more like a place where someone is forcing you to deal with your addiction problem. It surprises people when they hear that kids are allowed to live in rehab with their parents. I suppose it's probably difficult to picture a twitchy heroin addict asking a 10-year-old to pass the salt at dinner. Like when you see that video of the fat Indonesian baby smoking, something about the visual just doesn't seem right. But it does happen, and after staying in a bunch of centres, all with deceptively lovely-sounding names like Odyssey House or Karalika, I always thought the same thing. For kids, rehab is a lot like camp and it never stops your parents from drinking. Our journey into rehab didn't start until after mum had seemingly created the perfect life for us. She'd found the next man who was going to save us, and it was a time when everything should have been falling into place. Instead, thanks to her affinity for a good chilled box of wine, everything started falling out of place very quickly. The man, who was now part of an ever-increasing list, was Joe the Removalist. Joe was the quintessential Aussie bloke. He worked a tough job, loved having a cold one after work and watched rugby league on weekends. His goals in life were pretty simple. Wife, kids and just enough money to buy a house with a backyard. Oh, and if he was really fortunate and worked his ass off, he hoped to one day make a sacred pilgrimage to Graceland, the home of his hero and the only man he liked more than Slim Dusty, Elvis Presley. Even his life choices had been simple. He became a removalist because he loved trucks. And even today, in his late 40s, he still gets excited by a shiny 16-wheeler. Joe is honestly like the real-life version of Daryl Kerrigan from The Castle. Simple, lovely, and lovable. Which is why it's kind of unfortunate that my mum happened to him. Oh, sorry, mum. That's kind of mean. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Sorry. Let me keep going. Yeah, he's never got over me, actually. Mum met Joe at the El Rancho, the classiest joint in town outside of Macquarie Food Court. Of course, there was always the black stump, but a restaurant with steaks that good was the kind of place you only went to for a proposal. He was 21 and had no idea what was about to hit him. Mum was around six years older than he was, staggeringly beautiful. Oh, there you go. I made up for it. That was nice. And had two little daughters, which basically meant he was getting a ready-made family. He couldn't resist. I loved him. I would go to work with him on weekends, carrying a single lamp to the truck while he and the other burly men seemed to pick up refrigerators with one hand. He started coming to our house at Smurf Village, always in his stubbies and work boots, and would cook us steak and veggies for dinner, tomato sauce the only seasoning. He made life feel normal, simple, and within just a few months, he and mum were engaged. The wedding was a stunning piece of Aussie lower class perfection. If there was ever an indicator of what our life was going to be like with Joe the Removalist as our patriarch, that wedding was it. 
My mum's dress was homemade by a woman who lived on our street and was designed to look just like the most fashion-forward dress of the time, Lady Dyes. It was a glorious white taffeta explosion with two puff sleeves on her shoulders that could have easily hidden a massive quantity of Class A drugs. I have no idea what Class A means, but I feel like nowadays whenever you talk about drugs, you're always meant to say Class A. Rhiannon and I, as flower girls, wore dresses that matched mums, but in a dusty pink colour that made me feel like I was betraying everything I had so valiantly stood for when I kicked out that fairy diarrhea monstrosity of my fourth birthday party. I was forced to wear pearl earrings and flowers in my hair, and there is not one photo from the entire day in which I'm not sulking about looking so ridiculous. The wedding was held in the local Catholic church, and Joe's 15,000 Catholic siblings attended, along with mum's adopted parents and brothers. It felt like we were part of a real-life, proper family, doing a real-life, proper family thing. The reception was in a brightly lit function hall on the side of a busy main road, so the ambiance was obviously just gorgeous. All the regular things happened. They cut a cake, had a first dance. Joe pulled a garter off mum's leg with his teeth. My North Shore grandparents tried to get through it without looking overly horrified. And at the end of the night, mum and Joe were filmed walking out of the hall and into their lives together, which unfortunately at this location meant heading straight towards a busy intersection. Because romance. Mum soon had an it's-only-been-six-months-since-the-wedding wink baby, whom I immediately hated. After years of being the youngest, I found having a newborn in the house a very difficult and unnecessary adjustment. It was also the first time in my life I realised I had very few maternal skills and or interests. Rhiannon would fawn over Taylor, feed her, play with her and love her. The one time I was asked to watch her, I got distracted by TV and let her roll off the couch and faceplant on the carpet. I like to think when it comes to TV versus babies, my priorities were in order from a very young age. Soon we moved out of Smurf Village and into a very fancy private rental, which was pretty much the biggest and most exciting deal in Smurf Village since the day my dad was found dead in the bush. You see, people don't just leave housing commission. Leaving Houzo for a private rental is basically the equivalent of Princess Mary leaving Tasmania to become ruler of Denmark. They practically threw us a ticker tape parade as we drove out of the compound. We moved to West Ride, which is literally about five minutes from Smurf Village, but that didn't matter. We might as well have moved to a high-rise in Dubai. We had gotten out. No more quick licks. No more messed up kids drowning baby rabbits. No more mentally disabled guy trying to tempt us into his house with Kit Kats. We were private renters now, my friend, living the dream. But not even the dream could make mum happy. And just like with every man who came before him, it didn't take long for her to realise that Joe was not going to be an effective medicine. She and Joe both drank a lot. Her drink of choice was wine, usually in a box. His was beer, usually in a stubby holder. But it didn't make a difference what they drank. After a while, everything just seemed to end in a slurred argument anyway. Sometimes Rhiannon and I would come home to nobody in the house. Other nights, Joe would take off, drunk and furious. Then mum would take off, drunk and furious. And Rhiannon and I would be at home, not drunk, not furious, and wondering what the hell to do with a baby. For the first time ever, my mum was the one filling my body with toxic butterflies. And that's when the rehab trip started. First, it was shorter trips in smaller halfway houses. And because Rhiannon, Taylor and I were so young and mum was making a genuine effort to help herself, we were allowed to live with her wherever she went. But every time the rehab was over and we would come home, she'd head straight to the fridge and fill her glass from a chilled box of wine. 
So the trip started to become longer and we would stay in larger, more permanent facilities. Rhiannon and I would make friends, start at new schools, trying to explain to the kids what it meant when the principal said to your new teacher, we've got another one from the bloody rehab. I knew the serenity prayer by heart and I wasn't even eight years old. And I had started to think that accepting the things I cannot change referred to the fact that rehab would never change anything. But then came Karalika, the place that would definitely stop mum going to the fridge and then disappearing for days. The place that would stop her wanting to drink from a chilled box of wine. The place that would definitely change everything. We were told that we were going to live there for months, however long it would take to get mum better. And it was definitely a nice place. Karalika was a rehab centre located in Canberra, which, even though I'd lived in 50 different places since being born, and despite being the capital of my country, was somewhere I'd never actually been. It consisted of a bunch of bungalows that families could live in together, with a massive yard and a volleyball net, and the whole thing was in the middle of pretty luscious bushland, so there would be plenty of places for us to sneak off and play. Straight away, I was dubious that it was going to be different from any other rehab, which by now I considered something my mum just did when she wanted a break. Things were the same at Karalika as they'd been at every facility we'd lived at. You wake up in the morning and go to breakfast in a big shared dining hall. Then all the kids get driven to school or daycare in a minivan. I had no idea what the adults did while we were out for the day, but I assumed it had something to do with talking about how much they liked wine. After school, the kids would mostly just play together while our parents did more talking about how much they liked the various things they liked that they weren't supposed to like. Then there'd be dinner in the dining hall, after which our parents would have more meetings and we would do homework, which usually just meant watching TV in some rec room. Then, before bed, there'd be supper, where you got a biscuit and Milo and milk in a plastic cup, just like camp. Rhiannon and I always liked being friends with the other kids at rehab because they were the only kids we ever got to meet whose parents seemed worse than ours. There was a kind of hierarchy among us based on what our mums or dads were in for. Heroin was top of the list and the most impressive, and wine was the bottom. Trust our mum to be addicted to the lamest thing available. But really, being at the bottom of the addiction list just meant Rhiannon, Taylor and I were pretty much the luckiest kids there. All the kids felt lucky to be there, really, because living in rehab was the only time we got to see our parents consistently sober. It was the most stable and unafraid we had ever felt. Living in rehab was the only time I got to make it through entire days without feeling the toxic butterflies. I felt more of a sense of belonging around those kids than I had around any others. I think because even though the oldest of us was only 12, that was Harley, he could put a condom in his nose and make it come out of his mouth and it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. We all really respected each other. For what we had been through, for what we were going through, and for what we all secretly knew we would probably keep going through after we left. I don't think at that age we even knew what respect meant, but there was a sense of solidarity and empathy between us that I don't think can be described as anything else. And although I'd had my doubts about Karalika being any different from any other place we stayed, there actually was one major development while we were there. It had nothing to do with mum. She would start drinking the day we left. No, the thing that was different when we went to Karalika was me. In a turn of events that would shock me and leave Rhiannon completely baffled, in Canberra, I was considered cool. It had nothing to do with me. I was still my usual clueless, bungling self. But Canberra was like this alternate universe where the cool standards were so low, I was basically like a rock star the minute we crossed the border. I immediately realised something was up on our first day of school. I was only in year four, but I'd been to so many schools by that point, I knew exactly how to play my first day. 
Things were different for me than they were for Rhiannon. She would just walk into a classroom and the kids would realise they were in the presence of a better human. Not unlike how I imagine it is for Oprah every time she walks into a room. Rhiannon didn't make friends. Friends just immediately appeared at her side. By the end of the day, all the girls would be wearing their hair like hers and all the boys would be obsessed. It would take her exactly one day and zero effort to become Queen Bee. I, on the other hand, had to tackle things very differently. I would walk into a classroom and the kids would realise they were in the presence of an average human. I knew I was going to be low on the ladder, so my best strategy was to try and at least avoid being the very bottom rung. I would generally start with a scan of the room for potential friends. I had to play this carefully. It was a very delicate balancing act. I couldn't go after the total weirdos, but I also had no chance with the cool kids, so I had to try and find the ones who seemed in my league but were also nondescript enough that they didn't get bullied. Sometimes I managed this and sometimes I didn't. At one school, I misjudged and headed straight for the cool girls. By the end of the day, I was playing the dog in their game of house. At another school, I experimented with going it alone, but that was just as much of a mistake. School is like prison. Lone drifters are weak and vulnerable to attacks. You need some kind of crew as a buffer. So with many lessons from many schools already learned and having accepted that I would never own a crowd like Rhiannon, I walked into my new Canberra classroom ready to get to work. What happened next confused and frightened me. I didn't have to make any friends. Friends immediately appeared by my side. And not the rejects. I'm talking long blonde hair, probably all called Tiffany, cool girls. Everyone kept telling me they liked my hair and my pencil case. There was practically a fist fight when the teacher asked who wanted to be my desk buddy. At recess, I had girls following me around. By lunch, word got out that the coolest and cutest boy in class had an official crush on me. In the afternoon, I answered one question correctly and a rumour began to spread that I was some kind of child genius. Waiting to be picked up at the end of the day, I was surrounded by girls wanting to invite me to whatever it was people did in Canberra. Rhiannon looked perplexed. She'd obviously already taken over her class, but to see me in the same position was a foreign and unsettling experience for both of us. And that's when I realised what had happened. The standards in Canberra were so low that I'd somehow stumbled across the only school on earth where I would be considered the coolest person in class. I was a fraudulent queen bee. And I knew we weren't going to be in Canberra forever, so I wasted no time taking advantage of my newfound status. I learned how to control my minions and ruled over the class with a tough, charismatic and fair hand. I like to think I was a good leader, but even with the dwee blinders that my Canberran friends seemed to have been born with, I couldn't hide my true identity forever. I was so far from being a cool kid. My obsession with acrostic poems was proof enough of that, and living outside of my natural habitat started to take its toll. Toward the end of my time there, I could definitely feel the facade slipping away. I was starting to get brief sideways glances whenever I did or said the wrong thing. It was like they were slowly putting a puzzle together, and when the final piece was in place, it would reveal a picture of me wearing a stack hat and riding a tricycle with toilet paper hanging out the back of my pants. So I was relieved when, after a few months, our time at Karalika was over. Not because we were finally going home, but because I knew if we stayed much longer, my elaborate lie would be discovered. It was an exhausting way to live, but I left while I was still on top and will hopefully always be remembered by those kids as the mysterious yet impossibly cool girl from Sydney who swept through their lives like a trendy hurricane for exactly one term in year four. 
I also learned an important lesson. If you're a school kid who's being bullied and you live in a major city, head to Canberra. They will treat you like a god. Taylor had taken her first steps at Karalika. I had been cool and mum had completed her 12 steps for the 12th time. Just another standard stay at rehab. On our first night back home, I was still on a high from having accidentally pulled off three months as a fraudulent queen bee, although more than a little concerned about going back to the minion end of the food chain. I was excited to be back in my room in our fancy private rental. I was happy to see Joe. Things were good. Then I caught mum standing at the fridge, filling up her glass from a chilled box of wine. I started to cry. Not because I hadn't expected it, but because I hoped there would be at least one day where we could all pretend like this time it had worked. Mum told me it was fine, that I didn't have to worry, that going to rehab meant now she could drink just one glass and then stop. But hours later, the box in the fridge was empty, and I knew that I had always been right. Rehab is a lot like camp, and it never stops your parents from drinking. Your face looks funny. Why? I don't know. You do, you look like you have thoughts. Do you have some things to say? No, no. I was just thinking. Yeah, you would have felt like that. I was trying to put myself in your shoes. Like again, I'd gone to rehab. Yeah. And we'd come home, and you'd be thinking, "Oh, she's not going to. She won't drink this time," and hoping that it wouldn't happen. And when you were talking about that, you finding me in the kitchen taking the wine out of the fridge. Yeah. That would have been absolutely terrible for a young kid. That's what I. That's why my face probably looked, yeah, a bit strange because I was trying to put myself in your shoes. It was disappointing, I guess. Yeah, no, it would. I'd say it would have been a lot more than disappointing. I can't remember exactly when your drinking got really bad. Because I've tried to pin down a timeline with you over the years, like talking to you about it. And for a while you said you didn't start drinking until after dad died. But that's not true because we went to rehab no, pizza times Yeah, I did that. drink beforehand, but it was like, yeah. And yeah. then I remember going to a few rehab places. Like we stayed at Odyssey House and then we stayed at this other smaller halfway house and we stayed at this other place. So like it was a problem for a while. It was a, it was a problem. Basically, I was... My alcohol intake was just gradually increasing, increasing, mm. increasing. And it did so for years, mm. you know. I mean, I was basically what they call a functional alcoholic. Yeah. I did what I had to do. I didn't drink drive or anything like that. Yeah. But I was drinking a lot. I didn't drink during the day. Yeah. But I, I was drinking daily and gradually... That just increases and, cre- and increases. Yeah. Mm. And when when did it get so bad that you went to rehab for the first time? It was when it started to affect my behaviour and my relationships and things like that. How old were, were me and Rhiannon then? First time. Yeah. Well, it was from that house that... It wasn't West Ride. It, the house that we lived in there, that big house. Yeah. Right near the park. The private rental. Den- it was Deniston. Yeah. yeah. And it was it, it was around there. When I, that when was when you Where started I started to drink a lot. A bit more. No, a bit more. Yeah. Whose idea was it that you go to rehab? It was my idea. You were pretty unhappy with Joe, hey? He had absolutely no patience and it was just like click of her fingers and... You know, he was just set off and 
he would be like a rageaholic, tell you the truth. Mm. I remember you guys having big, scary fights. Big, 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 scary fights. Yeah, and he couldn't, like, we used to tease him sometimes, and he just, he couldn't even tolerate that. He'd lose the plot. Yeah. I mean, this this was with, you know, like a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old child. He'd just lose the plot. Oh, mean Rihanna. We'd be teasing him a little bit. So do you think he started drinking more because you were unhappy with him? Yeah. Plus, also, he drank a lot. Yeah, I so remember So we, bro- we drank lot. together, mm. you know what I mean? So, and that makes it even harder when you've got two people who drink quite a lot. Mm. Do you remember Karalaika in yeah, Canberra? Yeah, I remember, yeah. I, I loved the, it there. Yeah, I, did I had the, so much fun there. That was the beauty of that place. It was so well organised. Yeah, and the fact that you could take your children with you and you weren't, um, you know, separated from them. Mm. And like the school, the local school, being able to um, go to the local school oh, and, where I was a queen and there. all that it was amazing. Everything that they organised was just fantastic. That place was a good place. The Karalaka was really cool. It's very good. And there and was even the even the program was pretty good. What do you There's, mean the pro- oh what you the did. one I did which oh the like, stuff you did while we were watching the yeah. Simpsons I forget yeah. that you were actually was, like trying I mean, to get sober while was, we were having fun it was <laughs> only six it was only I mean I only stayed for the six weeks but mm. it was probably the best place I've ever been to really yeah I mean like I've said like I said I've been to the Salvation one on the Central Coast is it paid Ber- for Berkeley is it paid for Berkeley like Carolica that was pretty amazing they like, took all your money. What do you mean, all your money? Like if you... Because we didn't have any money. They took all your central money. Oh, right. That's pretty good. Or you'd get a certain amount for like cigarettes or or going going to the shops if you needed anything at the shops extra. Because I always wondered how we paid for that or if we paid for that, but we didn't. Government paid. Yeah. Well, the government, yeah, it was run. I mean, it was, of course, it was subsidised by the government. Plus you gave your benefit, most of your benefit. Right. Yeah, I mean, I completed the six-week program. I mean, I could have elected to stay there for months, but mm-hmm. I didn't. Basically, I wanted to get home so I could start drinking again. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. Like, I don't... Not, I mean, I remember drinking you... as in having a few drinks at dinner time. I mean, no, not dinner time. We'd go in... Yeah. Go for hours, but yeah. No, I remember you drinking the night I mean, I did it, like... And then I've been to rehab that many times and I mean, I knew all the information and mm. everything else and it just didn't work for me. It didn't work for me at all. What do you think now made you stop? Because you've been sober now almost a year. Yeah, a year and the 14th. It's the longest I remember you being sober my whole life. Basically, Rosie, I was going to die. Yeah. I wouldn't have had my birthday, which is coming up mm. this month. I, I wouldn't have had a birthday. I was so sick. I was going to die and it just came to me mm. that this is no way to live your life or live the, your final days out and that you have children and you have grandchildren that you owe it to, to at least give it one last try. Because mm. it went... It- so, I mean, death, when and then when you have a choice to die or not, and it wasn't cancer. It was the fact I was drinking myself to death and that's why I stopped. Because you went from like back at the start when you first started going to rehab and you said it was gradual and then it got to the point where, you know, last year and even for the last like, what, 
five or six years. I hadn't left that. I you, don't think I had. I hardly ever even left that. Yeah, house. you didn't leave was, the house. Like you would wake up and yeah. drink and just and sleep was, and wake up yeah. and drink and, and I was sleep. No, I was no longer able to communicate with people. No, you couldn't. I couldn't no. even have a conversation with you. No, you couldn't. No. And like we all thought you were going to die. Yeah, I was. I was. We were kind of just waiting. I was dying basically. Yeah. It wouldn't have been long. Probably a few more months. And you got so sick, like I wrote recently about the time I came to see you and you were in bed and like you would just like wet the bed and you couldn't even get up. No, I, like I wouldn't have a shower. For and weeks. there was just vomit I I everywhere wouldn't. and I had to carry you to the shower. I wouldn't be able to have a shower. I was too weak to stand up in the yeah, shower. Yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't stand up. And I hadn't, I remember I hadn't washed my hair for weeks and all this, all, like I had like cradle cap and oh, it was terrible. I hadn't, I can't even remember when I last brushed my teeth. I didn't even brush my teeth or anything. Why do you think it got to that place? Because even though you had a drinking problem for it's, my whole life, it right? Sneaks up on you. Were you were still working. Like I know, yeah, I know. For a long time, you were still I working. No, but then the last like five or six years, you stopped going to work and you stopped leaving the house and you just devoted your life to drinking all day every day. I bet I, I became very just um, depressed. Yeah, and I think that had something to do with it. And I didn't have anyone saying you shouldn't be drinking, you shouldn't be drinking. I mean, this is why I ended the relationship with uh, my friend Robert. Oh, yeah. Because he didn't want me drinking. And, like, I really... We I, stopped saying I get, it to I you got cause... on so well with... with um, yeah, I know you him. really liked him. And this is the reason that I launched myself into my next relationship with Rick because he, he likes drinking. He would drink with me. Yeah. So I had no breaks. We, I didn't have anyone to tell me, listen, you, 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 you know, you're just overdoing it. Well, we stopped saying that to you because it just didn't ever make a difference. So no, after yeah, a while you just well, stopped. I mean, the thing in, yeah, that's right. I mean, the thing is I was, I was working, I was drinking, I was doing permanent afternoon shifts. Yeah. But I was drinking two bottles of wine every single night. After I'd finished work. Yeah, I remember that. Every night. I but had, I, by the time I got back to work again the next afternoon, one thirty, mm. I would be totally sober again. Yeah, I had rules back then. Like I wouldn't come and see you after 5 o'clock. Oh, I yeah, wouldn't yeah. answer the phone if you called me after like 7. Or on days off. Yeah, or yeah, I wouldn't answer the phone if I knew you had a day off. Like because I just, I didn't, it really upset me. Like, and you're very difficult <laughs> to be around no, anyway, when you're drunk. Yeah. And so I had really strict rules, but there were still pockets of time when you were sober then. But yeah. then that disappeared. Like when I went to work. Well, that's what I mean. But then you just stopped going to work and it just all went to shit. And yeah, it I ended think, you know why, because I had a psychiatrist who yeah. was dealing with my, 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 my cyclothymia. Yeah. He was helping me deal with that and all that. And he basically said to me, whatever you do, Lisa, don't ever give up work. Because mm. that means I would... I was I could use it as an excuse to totally do whatever I wanted, get bloody drunk because I knew I did I didn't have the responsibility of having to get up the next day and go to work. As soon as I gave up work, that was the worst thing I ever did. You know what makes everything just got worse and worse. You know what makes me sad when you say that? What? That like work was enough of a motivator for you, but like we weren't. I know. But I don't mean when, for that to when be mean. I was looking, no, but when I was looking after you girls, my alcoholism wasn't anywhere near as bad as what it, it became. That's true, but it was still bad, Mum. Well, yes, I drank too much. I mean, I, and like 
before I really started getting sick, I mean, I was opening up my fourth bottle of wine mm. and drinking at least three and then my liver, because my liver function your always clean be, skins, your cheap clean yeah, skins. Yeah, but it was really decent stuff. It had like four stars, thank you very much. <laughs> you did. And I remember you, because you didn't leave the house, so you used to get Dan Murphy's delivery and you used to think that it I was. had it all organised. You used to think it was Dan delivering it to you. You'd say, I've got Dan my coming over. My friend Dan's coming. My friend Dan's bringing my <laughs> clean my skin. two cases. I was like, Mum, it's not actually Dan Murphy bringing oh, you. I know that. I was joking. <laughs> well, you were Dan. drunk. I can never be sure. No, I was joking. I mean, I always used to hear people in Alcoholics Anonymous this disease will get you by the throat and it will get worse. It'll never get better. You mm. will get worse. And I think, bloody bullshit. And I'm, and I'm listening to these old timers telling their stories and I was thinking, I'm never going to be like that. Mm. Jesus Christ. I mean, I shouldn't even be here. I'm never going to be like that. But eventually I was just like that, if not worse. Yeah, it was pretty bad. The last and five years. my body could no longer handle it. My liver was shot. That's why I've got cirrhosis. Mm. I know that you and I disagree on this, but I still maintain that a lot of stories that you told me that you say I got wrong in the book are stories that you told me when you were drunk about mm, things. And no. you say now that they're not true and you would never have said that. I, but no, I swear yeah. to God, there were certain things you told me when you were drunk that you probably don't remember telling me or remember telling me stories that way. I don't know. But I, I tend not to make things up. You know what I'm like. Yeah, but... I don't make things up. So no, I, I might have thought that that was the truth. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. You know, I still get nervous about you drinking again. <laughs> I know. There's been a bottle of wine we use for cooking in the fridge for two months. I know, but I still get no like sometimes I like to have a f- couple of bevies at night and I do it in my room. Yeah, because I've I don't been able to pick it when you I know. have. Mum came in, you came into my room the other night and you go, <laughs> she was talking to me and she goes, you seem a bit drunk. <laughs> we both looked at each other. You seem a bit drinking. We both looked at each other and, and it was like neither of us said anything and then you walked out of the room. It's because I'm scared to do it in no, front you of you. You don't have to. But I just always will be. Like I just don't is, want to. Like I don't do it all the time, but some I had like such that was such a stressful week that week. I could oh, was so it last you week. Drink or the week whenever before. you want. No, it but it do was. Anything. But um it doesn't do anything. But I make me I, like I, do, I do it in my room because I'm just like I no, don't want to no do need it. To be like that in front of you. I but I also think it's slack to do it in front of you, even if you think it's not going to affect Rick you. Rick drinks. He's always drunk. Yeah, and in front I think of that's since a, I gave up drinking. Yeah, I think that's a dick move. That's why I do it secretly in my room when mm. I need. <laughs> my friend M is in the studio yeah, right now. I she's all, laughing her I head off. Always tell when are she's you, been. Drinking? Are you picturing me in my room by myself, like oh. sneaking a drink? That's sad. <laughs> That's sad. It's not. I don't care about having, like, it's not that I'm ashamed of drinking. It's that no, I don't want to do it in front of you. Oh, yeah. All I right. just feel I like, A, I, I, there's still a part of me that is worried you will drink again. And B, I just think it's slack to do it in front of you. Like, it's just thoughtless. Why make it any harder for you than it well, needs to be? Well, this, the thing is, Rosie, it's not hard. This, that's this what you say. Some, no, and that's this is in some ways, there is a God. Because my desire for dr- to drink was just lifted from me. And I have noticed that too. This is the first time I don't even ever. I think about it. First of all, it's the longest you've yeah. ever been sober that I've seen. Well, but it's, it's only- also the first time ever that I've 
felt like maybe there's a chance you won't drink again because you just honestly seem like you don't want to. And there's that bottle of white wine in the fridge that you used to make that chicken sauce and it's still just in the fridge and you haven't drunk it. No, I wouldn't want to. I've just totally turned off. Yeah. Does the thought of drinking now, like, describe it? Is it like, does it make you feel sick? No, it doesn't make me feel sick. Why don't you want it anymore? Like, what switched off? I don't know. You have to ask God. God. <laughs> Maybe we should call your old um, Mormon buddies. Well, some, I don't get know. Them, get them to mow the something, lawn and then ask them some something, questions. Something just came across me. I was in hospital and I had this problem that alcoholics have with their brains and you get really confused and you don't really know what's going on. And yeah. that I was like that for months. Yeah. A bit foggy and I thought, oh, I'm never going to be able to think straight anymore. Yeah. Never again. I mean, I, I'm still pretty vague and forgetful. I mean, because that's the permanent damage I've done mm. from drinking alcohol. But it was just being in that hospital bed. You were in hospital for a while after. Almost a month. Yeah. Which is a long time. Hospitals tend to want you to be in and out. Fairly, but they kept you there. Fairly rapidly. We thought you were going to die. I think they thought you were going to die. <laughs> they thought I had liver cancer. That's how bad. But you have cirrhosis. No, they no, they didn't even pick up the cirrhosis until I had that special test they've just introduced. Mm. I mean, they, they said the, they did the MRI and um, there was no liver cancer, so they, they were happy about that. But the cirrhosis didn't really show up because there was, unless you have a, Biopsy, they can't actually test for that. You quit smoking as well. Yeah. And you'd been smoking for, how old are you now? 53 this year? I've been smoking for 38 years. Yeah, you've been smoking for almost 40 years. So it's like. Yeah, and I can't remember what month it was I gave up. But you literally, you gave up (laughs) because I kept yelling (laughs) at you for secretly smoking inside at night when you thought I was asleep. It was in the back room. I was right near the (sighs) window. There was three doors between It always blows my mind that people who smoke think that people who don't smoke can't notice it. Anyway. Like I would, like I could be in the deepest sleep and I would just wake up immediately and know that you were doing it. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I gave up smoking. I didn't think I. So you've given up two hugely addictive things. Yeah, I didn't think I'd ever be able to give up smoking. It's crazy. And now you're obsessed with your Fitbit. Is I'm not. Yes, I'm, I've lost interest you in s- it. You switched your addiction to your Fitbit. I'm not interested in that anymore. I've got to find something else I'm obsessed with. Yeah, I'm you trying do. to look for it. Are you? <laughs> yeah. What can it be? Well, you've been cooking for me yeah, a lot. That's I'm, good. Yeah but, yeah, but that's not enough for me. I need something else. But, you know, it's also good that. I'm going to be doing stuff. I'm going to study soon because I'm interested in, like, getting really involved with the NDIS. That's really good, Mum. So. I start that this month. That's full time. Plus, I've got to work too. Well, a lot do of people my... don't know you're a nurse. Oh no, yeah, psychiatric nurse. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of ironic, to be honest. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> no offense, mum. Yeah, God, that's another bloody story. I had, I was sent out of area when I when my doctor admitted me because I was so damn depressed. Yeah, he was really worried. He knew I was a nurse at yeah. Liverpool Hospital. Yeah, and all well, at Macquarie. You know, yeah. He sent me to Bankstown. Oh, Jesus! And there's a patient, one of your patients. He, he later came to Liverpool, and he remembered my face. Oh God, how! And at Liverpool, he said to me, "You were in Bankstown as a patient." <laughs> oh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Well, uh, oh well. Mm. I suppose if you're a patient and a nurse, you're oh, going to end see, up yeah. in the same places yeah. and with no, the same yeah. people eventually. That's true. 
So you're doing so well now, Mum. Yeah, I'm, it's amazing. I, I amaze myself. I didn't think there was any way I would give up smoking because I think I think I, I thought, what am I going to be left with? If I yeah. give up smoking, what am I going to be left with? And I originally oh, thought... Oh, I did replace it with lollies. But, yeah, and also you were obsessed with your Fitbit. And I thought, well, okay, that's, you know, swapping drinking and smoking for a Fitbit's positive. <laughs> but yeah, you're sort of getting yeah. over the Fitbit now. But, yeah, I am. But it's, see, the thing that is positive to me is that it doesn't seem like you need to fill that space with anything. And that's positive. Like, you shouldn't always be having to fill a, a void with something. Yeah, I mean, they say I that. I think the point is now you're feeling like you don't have a void anymore. No, and I'm probably trying to look for one. But I don't think you have one. <laughs> like... I've never seen you this happy and motivated. And yeah, but you know, I, I get, I get, um, you know, like tearful about things. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I think about things all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like I don't think about the past and. Well, you have had a pretty it, how, traumatic life. How it has affected me and all that kind of stuff. So. Mm. Yeah, but it's it's always there. But you just have to move along and be positive. Yeah, well, that's good, not, Mum. Not try and think about it too much. People always ask me who have read the book, um, like how you're doing now and stuff. And yeah, for a while it was I'm, hard because I didn't know what to say, but it's so nice being able to tell them how you're doing yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, it's, like when you wrote that book, I mean, I was like still drinking. Yeah, I know. Quite. Well, when you started writing it, I was probably still drinking quite heavily. You were drinking heavily when it was published. You couldn't even read it for ages. Because you were so drunk. Oh, all the no, time. no, no! I didn't want to read it because my friend had told me, a couple of people had told me not to read it under any circumstances, and of course you're going to when someone tells you not to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I thought, but this is my life. I mean, apparently my life, my life, and your life together. Yeah. Why not read it? Why? Why should I be embarrassed because of, of my life? Well, you shouldn't be. So that, or our life, and that's when I thought, well, I'm going to read it. And then you thought heaps of it was made up. No, I didn't think, <laughs> no, I didn't think heaps of it were made up at all. I mean, there was just. Wrong, a, wrong. There was a couple of bits and pieces that I objected to, but all in all, it's fairly accurate. Mm. Well, it is, um, it's really nice to see you doing so much better. Oh, thank you, darling. That's all right, Mama. I'll probably still. Not drink in front of you, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll probably always feel like I have to do that. But other than that, it's very nice. All right, darling. Thank you. In the next episode... I'm talking about the next book that you farmed out to give us sex <clears throat> education. Um, Every Girl... That was an excellent book. Yeah, but it saved you from having exactly conversations. That book freaked me the f out because that was where I realized that you have to put tampons up into yourself. And I don't know where I thought they went before that, but I didn't realize that I had to put things up inside me, and that scared the shit out of me. Yes, Rosie. That aside, I think that was very responsible thing for me to do. I was too uncomfortable to do it myself, so I bought a very (laughs) well-known book that was supposed to be excellent and put it on your bed. Right. Yes, okay. You should be grateful. This is Mum Says My Memoir Is A Lie. 
Recording assistance by Felix Bray. Audio production by Nick Slater. Executive producer is Jamie Show. Listener.